Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. Hello there. Hello. Um, right, well, uh, what have you been up to this week in uh, the, the wilderness, as it were? Uh, I've not had a chance to do much this week, uh, to be honest. Uh, we are, uh, however, recording on Pancake Day, so... I have made yeah, pancakes, yes. but that's not wildlife related. <laughs> well, we could. I, I did mean to actually put up a, uh, by the time this comes out, it'll be long past it. I did actually mean to put a pancake slug uh, Facebook or or something um, thing uh, out. Yes. Yeah, that would have been, that would have been well. good, but um, well, you know, I didn't. So <laughs> next year, I mean, pancake slugs I can talk about I, anyway. I am going to, I can't speak speak about it yet because i've not been but tomorrow i'm going to plymouth aquarium oh very cool i was yeah. like going there well i went to chester zoo today so i think we've yes, both yeah both been to different uh wildlife or you know um uh different animal places i'll tell you the one thing that i did really uh quite like didn't get enough time to spend in there um there is an exhibition on at uh chester zoo about british native species in oh, their yeah. old orangutan house, and I mean the old orangutan house, I remember seeing it when I was a little kid, um, that has been basically closed for, well, since I think the Realm of the Red Ape was finished, which oh, must right. have been, what, 2006, 2007, yeah. something like that. Um, that building has, uh, you've not been able to get in there, but they've now turned it into like this big exhibition hall. So you can go in there and you walk in and there are giant screens around this room uh, showing about British native species. So you walk in and uh, there was dolphins and, and seals and everything. Just basically huge uh, projected TV screens of, of different British wildlife. So, yeah, really, it was really cool. And, and to be cool. honest, a lot of zoos don't do anywhere near enough to support um, our own animals uh, and uh, and species although chester does have um quite a few projects that run sort of outside of the zoo to do with um nature conservation but mm. uh, a lot of the stuff you see in the zoo is obviously exotic animals because let's face it that's what people go there to see um <laughs> to they, i know they're interested at. in several uh, several um native species for example scotch wildcats yeah, uh, but but then I I think all accredited British zoos should be involved in in um, native species conservation. Uh, I, Definitely, I certainly think most accredited British zoos should have uh, Scottish wildcats should be involved in the breed. I I think that should be a standard. Yeah, mm. if not them, something else. Although, hold on to that thought for when we get into the news. I'll uh... okay. I'll say no more on that for the moment. Speaking of um, news, and before, because befo uh, it's kind of not news, but I'm, well, it is, but it, I wasn't going to talk about it, but because we're talking about zoological collections, you know, this uh, this weekend just gone, um, Paradise Wildlife Park, that's been closed for, for a little bit just to kind of update itself because it's, uh, it's going through new branding, basically. 
They've mm-hmm. reopened them on this weekend just gone. Um as Hartford Hertfordshire Zoo. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if there's anyone from there listening, uh, congratulations to them. Yeah. Well, shall we uh, make our way into the news? I don't think we need to rebrand that, but uh, <laughs> we'll go with what we've got. Um, and, and yeah, we'll, we'll look at uh, what I hinted at for native species. Let's do it. It's the news! Right, well, we're into the news for this week. Um, Aaron, what do we got? Well, every week we're inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad and the extraordinary. So let's open up our natural history cupboard newsreel and dive on in. And I'm going to start things off on a bad note uh, this week because... Yeah, (laughs) So from One News New Zealand, um, I've got nearly a thousand first seals found dead in Kaikoura in five Yo. months. Yeah. So nearly a thousand first seals have died along the Kaikoura coastline uh, in the past five months. And scientists say it's a result of warm sea temperatures and depleted fish, uh, fish stocks. Postmortem tests have shown many were, uh, were baby seals that had starved to death. Uh, and further research is being done to work out what exactly was going on at this point. So, yeah, you know, you can only go up from that sort of a headline. Um, well, actually, it, it, is, it is an up. And at least this is concerning seals too, because this one comes to us from Fizz.org. Act of altruism observed in bull elephant seal. Uh, a yeah. paper published by three ecologists in the Marina Mammal Science Journal details a world's first observation. A bull elephant seal behaving altruistically. The male, spotted on Point Reyes National Seashore, California, rushed into the sea to save a drowning pup who had had allowed the waves to pass his location. The ecologists, Sarah Allen, Matthew Lau, and Sarah Cotty, uh, managed to document the event with their cameras. So that is really cool. Yeah. Is is the the video footage available? I couldn't find it. Oh, so I assume it is somewhere, but I, I couldn't find it. That'd be really interesting to see. It would be. Uh, staying in the water um, from popular science, although this is ancient water, three new ancient shark species have been discovered in Alabama and Kentucky. I did see this. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, one with needle-like fangs uh, once mm. stalked a shallow sea that covered the southern US. Uh, the pictures they provided of this, the species called... Glicomanius caraforum, uh, which was about 10 to 12 feet long and had a powerful bite. Uh, it says it looks a bit like a cross between like a six gill shark and a bull shark almost. It's it's pretty oh, yeah. chunky looking. Um, so paleontologists in Kentucky and Alabama have discovered fossils belonging to three new ancient shark species. These long dead predatory fish lived uh, during a time when the region was covered in a shallow subtropical sea and a waterway that connected ancient land masses older than Pangaea. Um, oh. And it's through mostly accidental dental discoveries uh, that these fossils have been named uh, for the simple reason that well, shark teeth are the main things that tend to uh, fossilize. So, yeah, some new shark species from 325 million year old uh, seaways. Hmm. Well, we're, we're sticking with the theme of teeth because 
back into fizz.org. New research discovers adult Komodo dragon teeth are surprisingly similar to those of theropod dinosaurs. A team of researchers working with Toronto Zoo examined teeth shed by Toronto's dragon, Kalat, uh, using histological analysis and CT scans. The findings revealed that adult Komodo dragon dentition share the same strongly recurved structure and serrated cutting edges as dinosaurs, complete with dentine cores. The research opens up avenues to use Komodos as living models for further study into life history and feeding strategies of extinct theropods. Very cool. I mean, if you think about it, they, they're very similar in their sort of feeding strategy to small uh, theropods like Velociraptor or something, which is I would have thought small, so, yeah. small pointed teeth that are serrated down each edge to mm. to really rip and tear at flesh. So I have good news uh, finally from some of my ones. I mean, the shark one wasn't exactly mm. bad news, uh, but this is from the BBC and it's third humpback whale spotted off Cornish coast. A whale photographed by wildlife surveyors off Cornwall's coast has been confirmed as a different animal to the two seen offshore recently. Uh, and this is um, Cornwall Wildlife Trust's Project Sequest uh, Southwest has said that the animal was seen in St. Ives Bay on Thursday uh, by Tash Murch, who took the photo of the whale, which she sent to experts who confirmed it was indeed another whale. So we seem to be uh. having a resurgence of humpback whales in the southwest of the uk so that's pretty cool yeah well i was gonna say there was there was one down near st ives a couple of weeks ago and then a week later there was another one just off of uh southwest wales so that's really interesting yeah well they they come back yeah yeah that's really good um there is actually a website well there used to be a website i've not checked for it in a long time but it actually t- told you what whales have been spotted where around our coastline and you'd be uh you'd be impressed with the species that we get around around here it it's it was a really interesting read but yeah uh so uh jumping on over to live science this time temperature inside chichulub crater after dinosaur killing asteroid hit revealed with paleothermometer which i think is a fantastic concept a paleothermometer um <laughs> So a study sampling rocks originating from the apocalyptic crater shows that the formations were there experienced a scorching heat of 330 degrees Celsius. The study, which can be read in the journal PNAS Nexus, further suggests that the impact didn't actually release as much carbon dioxide as previously thought, a factor that could change much of what we know about the following mass extinction. Um, and that that that's that is a really interesting point to go on because uh, well actually I'm going to leave that because I want to do a video about it on the about a um, about the mass extinctions so yeah we'll do that another time. Um, my final one uh, of the uh, the news articles uh, comes from the Independent. Highway bosses to close road for six weeks to allow toads, frogs, and newts to cross. Uh, oh, good. Road closures um, are usually attributed down to potholes uh, and uh, repairs or even police incidents. But in Somerset, highway bosses have stopped traffic to allow frogs, toads and newts to cross safely across an 800 metre stretch of Charlecombe Lane in the outskirts of Bath, which will be closed from this Monday uh, for a maximum of six weeks 
to allow for one of the country's major toad migration routes. So you know what? That's just really nice to see more than anything. Yeah, that is. Hmm. Um, and that about wraps it up for this week's newsreel installment. Remember, if you guys at home have news articles and topics of interest that you think we should cover, send them in. You can use any of the usual ways to contact us. Uh, or you might want to use an altruistic bull elephant seal to to deliver the message. Probably don't. I don't think they'll get through the door. <laughs> um, and you may see your topic or news article covered here or in our main topic discussion. And with that said, Gareth has this week's main topic. Mm-hmm. What is it? So, yes, the article I have actually comes from ITVX, which is just ITV News. Um, Hmm. which is a TV channel in the UK. Um, So beautiful wildcats could return to Devon after more than 100 years. This is on several different sites at the moment. Plans to basically, or talking about, and I'm fairly certain we've talked about this in the news before. Yeah, um, we have. The idea to return uh, wildcats uh, to Devon, uh, specifically Dartmoor and Exmoor, is is moving along by the sounds of it, could possibly be seen back in England in the near future. Um, the Devon Wildlife Trust is hoping uh, to achieve. So the article itself goes on a little bit about the European wildcat, which they do call them in this, the European wildcat. Myself and Aaron uh, discussed what we would prefer to call them. Um, I I myself prefer Scottish wildcat because, let's face it, that's been the stronghold of this species, keeping it alive. But if we ever got to a point where they are widespread over the UK, then... Yeah, I could quite happily go with calling it the European wildcat or the, the British wildcat or just wildcat, which works quite well. The other mm. name they've got for it is the woodcat, um, which I think is quite a nice uh, name for it. I've never heard it called that before. No. Um, do, you, do you know where that, who calls them that and where it comes from? Supposedly, from? according to the article, um, they are called the woodcat in England. They once oh, found throughout okay. the UK, um, but hunted to near extinction in the 18th century. In fact, mm. this is something I did not know that it included in the article. Uh, there was actually a small population of them living on Exmoor up until the 1900s. I didn't no. know that. I never when I did my creature feature and all the research that went into that, I mm. never once came across that. So I mean, it may be anecdotal, if anything, but mm. if anything, that means that... Yeah, bearing in realist- mind on Exmoor, they think that there's leopards up there. So, <laughs> <laughs> Realistically, that should be where we should be putting them back, is Exmoor. You know, if that mm. was their symbolic last stand here in England, then uh, they should definitely be, uh, they should definitely be um, reintroduced there. So, Absolutely. A national study recently found that the uh, the southwest was among the best area uh, in in England to basically reintroduce them. Can you guess why, Aaron? And um, I love that. I love this because I'll link it to something a bizarre fact that I also learned this last week that also works on the same re- uh, same reasoning. Oh, go go on then. Go on. Okay, so. You may have heard of uh, what are called county lines drug gangs. This is very much going left of centre here. Yeah, I have heard of this. Okay, so <laughs> the same reason that uh, Scottish wildcats would be well uh, well enough reintroduced into the uh, the southwest over uh, anywhere else in the in the country um, is is very similar to the reason why North Devon doesn't have much in the way of county lines drug gangs. Can you can you guess why? 
so we don't have many drug gangs. We we don't tend saying. to have so county lines drug gangs, which are, are, are drug gangs that... that will come from another part of the country and sort of pitch up here um, to to sell to I don't know. People oh, I mean, firstly, there's there's not many big cities here, and secondly, it's it's an aging population. It's mainly. <laughs> re- retirements and and politicians second homes well neither of those would help with the scottish wildcat but i'll tell you what it is so essentially it's to do with our lack of roads (laughs) so because because north devon exmoor and and even down into dartmoor as well is actually remarkably um sparsely populated by either people or roads apart from small little country lanes there are no major you know, major roads that cut through the majority of the countryside, it actually makes the best place for them to reintroduce. And it's the reason why North Devon is apparently one of the lowest areas for, like, drug gangs coming in, because they get here and they look at the uh, the fact that they have to take all these, like, windy little roads to get anywhere, and they just can't be bothered. And it's probably the roadworks puts them off as well. But, <laughs> but there you go. There's a very loose connection to two random things that I learned within the last week. Um, So, yeah, they are looking at introducing them here for the simple reason that it is a very uh, vast rural area that we have to play with, um, to be able to use to to do things like that. Uh, And it's uh, it's down to people like Kath Jeffs, uh, the Southwest Wildcat Officer uh, for the Devon uh, Wildlife Trust, explained why the region would be a lifeline for the species. Although we've got road networks, it's not as wide-ranging as other parts of the country. There's good habitat potential, and there are relatively no low numbers of people. This is a species that actually would rather be away from people. It's not particularly wanting to be near human habitation, he said. And no. The trust is carrying out studies that do include talking to the public to assess the feasibility of reintroducing the wildcats in the southwest, uh, and also assuring people that Measures that keep out foxes from people's farms would also keep out cats as well. So, um, yeah, everything yeah. is pretty much right for them here. The biggest problem, and it does touch on that very slightly in this article, which is is a little bit of a shame. It doesn't actually talk an awful lot about a lot of the schemes that are going on in mainland Europe to uh, to help bolster this species, including Bund, which is the Friends of the Earth Germany. So I'm assuming it's to do with like Bundes... So, you know, like uh, between Leipzig and, and Frankfurt to reconnect areas of forest. Uh, Germany is basically doing an awful lot to, to help their wild cats. But the, the biggest threats that these cats face, as they do in Scotland, um, is, uh, is finding a mate uh, and breeding with their own kind. The second biggest problem is breeding with, well, domestic cats. Um, now, Aaron, yeah. you've got domestic cats. Drew has domestic cats as well. In fact, I, I I know quite a few people who've obviously got domestic cats because, let's face it, cats and dogs are your two main sort of pets that most people have um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. The biggest issue I have with domestic cats, and it makes me quite unpopular when I bring out this uh, this opinion, but it's having lived in Australia where you see the devastation that feral cats pose to wildlife is not letting cats out to roam because I just, I, they're an animal that either gets hit by cars, attacked by dogs, or attacked by other cats, or gets pregnant or impregnates another cat. And then you end up with a real issue. 
my thought should be that cats should have uh, outdoor enclosures, a catio, basically, which a lot of people in Australia are moving towards to basically save native wildlife. The same thing, I think, should be true for the UK. We should be moving to do that to obviously make sure that we don't end up with cats just roaming around. But the biggest thing we should be doing is to make sure that all cats are neutered um, or castrated so that we don't end up with this interbreeding. And that's that's the biggest issue that the wild cats face in Scotland is interbreeding with domestic cats. These hybrids that you end up with aren't as well suited to life in the uh, the, the areas as they are. And essentially what you end up having is such a, a diluting down of the gene pool that the cat, the wild cat itself becomes functionally extinct because it's it's just blended into uh, domestic cats, which is really, really sad um, in, in yeah. so many ways. So my biggest push would be if they, if they were going to do this here, is they should be there should almost be laws about uh, making sure that unless you're a registered cat breeder or something like that, and you have an actual excuse or reason to 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 actually breed cats. They should be you know neutered or castrated um, at that point. Basically, I think that's the the best way of doing it to make sure that uh, these animals are not posing a, um, a a risk, I suppose, to wild cats. You know to to outbreed them if it were if it were a case that the wildcats were fine and and didn't interbreed with them i would still probably be very much on the the side of going okay well let's not let cats out to roam because of of all these other issues that they can cause and all the other issues that can happen to them the amount of cats that i've seen uh that have been injured by other animals as well um because they've just gone out to roam but it's it's this weird sort of cultural mindset that we have of cats are fine to roam you know uh, i mean farm cats are another one they're basically not pets farm cats they're just they're part of the farm the farm um in the sense that they keep vermin down you know so it's a really hard yeah, one to, to release... do i'm not being yeah. funny but if if farms weren't involved in in the the grouse shoots and the the pheasant shoots we wouldn't have the pheasants there eating the adders, which would be the natural pest true. control. True, true, true. But, but part yeah. of this is going to have to be working with a lot of people in these areas, which are, well, very rural farming areas where a lot of people have very, very old backwards views on nature conservancy and things. And, well, we already have a hard enough time trying to convince people to help our native birds of prey. So, uh, you know, a land-based predator that's seen as a savage, effective hunter. And cats are incredible hunters. They are so efficient mm. and so, uh, the, the, you know, their kill rate compared to something like a dog or something is is much, much higher. They are yeah. pure predators in every sense of the word. And that's that's part of the reason why I both love and respect cats, but also dislike them. It's this weird sort of duality that I have. I find them utterly fascinating animals because of how well adapted they are to do what they do. But in the wrong environment, cats are an absolute menace and need to be eradicated. So in Australia and New Zealand and, and any other place in the world where a cat is not meant to be and has been introduced, they are so good at what they do. They can obliterate 
entire species very, very easily. And I'm very much, you know, we need to think of how we can serve these animals. Yes, we've introduced them and the animal is suffering for our stupidity, but other animals will then suffer because we refuse to do anything about our own stupidity. You know, so it's it's a really hard one to uh, to get people to get on board with. But the idea of confining their cats, um, castrating as well. A lot of people don't like the idea of that. But yeah, this mm. is this is where my my views on cats and and how we deal with them is is very very conflicted in some ways because like I say I do really like no, I, I I I agree um I, I do agree I, so I as you say I've got two cats and Drew has two cats and at the moment both of our cats uh, that's not proper English for four cats but basically what I'm trying to say is Drew's cats and my cats they're both allowed out to roam mm. and but I say that as someone who completely agrees with what gareth's saying that we need to move society as a whole needs to move to a place where what do you what do they call them cat aviaries and cat patios, uh, patios. Beca- become the norm yeah um that's definitely the thing that needs to happen because because even though my two cats are done so if we did uh, bear in mind m- me and drew live on two opposite sides of the same village on exmoor and in yeah. just just in my cul-de-sac alone here, there must be twenty cats that it's, roam around. I'm I'm so, always surprised by the amount of cats that are around where your house is. Yeah. So 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 my two cats are done. So I'm not too bothered with with if there was Scottish wild cats, the the risk to diluting their gene pool because my cats can't breed. But I, I you you can ask Atta and you can ask other people. Well, you can. Gareth can attest this. I've I've probably spoken to you this about it before. It makes me very uncomfortable when my cat brings in um animals. Not because I have to yeah. clean it up, although that is gross. Um it's it's because <laughs> when they bring it in Gareth half alive saying, and it rushes off into the house somewhere, that's that's yeah, the irritating thing. It's, it's the, the it's it's the like you can't you can't train a cat to, you can train a cat to do anything that a dog can do, but you can't mm. train animals. I suppose you you could with enough time and and that, but with a place like Britain where native wildlife is so hard to come across anyway, it would be very very difficult to train a cat to be selective in its prey so it's not going after uh, endangered species or vulnerable species, or even to train it to not yeah hunt at all. I mean, part of the um, other issue I have with with cats and out to roam and things like that. It's not so much that the cat is doing its natural behavior because that is what it does. It's more the fact that if you were to take, say, an area where you live, mm-hmm. yeah, if you were to look at it realistically, numbers of so a cat is uh, it's not a top tier predator. It's not something like a wolf. It's sort of second or third tier predator. You know, it's it's sort of. Yeah. Small enough that it itself could be eaten by something like an eagle or a, a even a fox if it or a badger if it really wanted to, um, but it is at its point in that trophic level. Now, if you were to look at that from a standpoint of the ecology in the area, if you had you know a load of mice and small birds, reptiles, those sort of things, you would expect probably five, six 
cats in that area, in that small selected area, as it is. Maybe, maybe we end up with something like 20, less. like you say. Yeah. So it's the density of which we have. And then think of areas in towns and cities where you'll have, you know, two, three hundred cats and, and their their whole territories reflect this as well. Whereas a farm cat's territory might be three or four fields worth of, of roaming to look for things. Uh, mm -hmm. Domestic cats in in cities and, and, and things, their territories are two or three gardens, if that, maybe one garden because of the um because of the amount of other cats in the area you know unless you've got say a dominant one that is taking a larger portion of the area but yeah it's the funny thing is that, that people laugh at me when i say this but you wouldn't let your dog go out and roam no and yeah exactly the reason why they're both carnivores they're both predators the reason why people find my dog analogy funny is because they when they when they think of letting the dog out they think of danger to 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 kids and the vulnerable or danger to to livestock and other pets so mm. it's only because it affects them directly yeah Kill, killing a mouse or a bird or or a slow worm doesn't affect them personally and so they don't care no, it's not that no, they no. don't care but they can't relate um so yeah i i have also said that i i think that i've like i've come to a place where it's just it just hasn't been we we had our our cat um, and it wasn't uh, feasible to do the enclosure. And as time's gone on, and I've kind of come to a place where if I can't, if if I'm in a place without the ability to have a, a cat aviary or a cat patio, then these these guys will be my last cats. Well, as I mean... much as I love cats, it's just there's got to be a, a balance. Mm. I mean, also, you you can you can replace Artemis anyway. Like, no, no, you're the uh, story of me and Artemis. Artemis is a, is one of those cats is... that is just a, a step above any other cat I think I've ever met. A cat that will walk with you like a dog to yeah. go for walks and be quite happily just wander along with you. That that cat is is very very different. Anyway, I mean, yeah. I I think we could quite easily go on this quite controversial. Uh, yeah, I say controversial, yeah. it shouldn't be controversial in so many ways, but you talk about people's pets and it becomes, you know, it becomes personal basically. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a hard thing to tell. That's why I thought I would just chime in because I am someone who owns cats and loves mm. cats who, 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 I, through I would various love... reasons has a cat, has his cats roaming. Um, yeah. but I'm saying it because it's not a personal thing because not everybody is in a position to, to do that. We're not in yeah. a position to be able to have that right now. It's just something to think about in future. Like I say, if I decided to have a cat after Artemis, mm. then it, then it, it takes, would have to be it would have to be done then. I think it takes a cultural shift in a lot of ways to change yeah. our view on some of these things. And those take a long time to do, um, to change people's perceptions of, of how we do things but it can happen and and by doing small steps like this making it more popular more people are more likely to to do stuff like that and to be honest mm. weirdly over the years i've actually found myself becoming more of a cat person than a dog person <laughs> i think I it's the... what 
the fact that our cat is quite happy to just sit there and do nothing. I love dogs (laughs) as well, but uh, having looked after people's cats and that in the past, I'm quite happy with the idea of it just asleep on me and not weighing a ton and um, and just sitting there and just going scratch me. But yes, I I wouldn't unless I could actually provide a, um, a, you know, a catio or something. Because to be honest, I wouldn't want the neighbor's cat getting anywhere near it. That thing's that thing's awful. <laughs> I don't I like what, if, if you've got, especially if you've got something like a Bengal cat. Oh, um, now those I would, yeah, that would be the one I'd have. Yeah, the, it's a domestic cat, so don't fall for the 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 rubbish that it's, it's nah. a wild cat. But but they are worth so much money, and you're gonna let it out, like exactly. <laughs> getting risked attacked by a fox a dog hit by a car um and also bengal cats are swimmers and climbers so yeah. a cat patio or a cat avery is the perfect way to keep them yeah yeah i, I mean yeah they're, they're all i mean i i love those ones uh i i got to look after a friend's one and it, its personality was so much more than most most cats they yeah, just they're, they're, they're so so good yeah but yes, I, I would not want to, for the simple price point of, of one of those cats, want to let it out of my sight. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, anyway, shall we move on uh, into our creature feature, which is a little bit less controversial than me talking about my uh, likes and dislikes with uh, with cats. Let's do it. Cool. It's the creature feature. Right, well, we're into this week's creature feature. Aaron, what are we uh, what are we looking at this week? The way you said that, I thought I was the creature feature. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, quite a special animal. On this planet, we we call home. Uh, there are 21 species that belong to the cobra family. Our creature feature tonight claims lordship over them all. And yet, it's not one of them. This usurper of the cobra crown, as majestic as it is deadly, won its royal title for a route so typical of history's monarchs, conquest. The king cobra is a striking animal to behold, measuring up to 5.59 metres, or about 18 foot for our friends across the pond. This fear-inducing snake is the longest venomous snake on earth. Uh, again, I get the, the privilege, the honour of talking about snakes uh, on this episode, which is great because I love snakes. Um, so yeah, the King Cobra, with the ability to grow to weights pushing 10 kilograms, it's a notably hefty adversary too, if you happen to be a true Cobra, that is. But it isn't all slivering death and leaking fangs. As I've likely alluded to already, the King Cobra is a handsome species. Picture the scene. You're out in Southeast Asia. You find yourself in some dry grassland, walking through the scrub, you manage to catch a glimpse of something dark moving silently low on the ground to your side, and then it rises. Its robe of scales are olive green with dark contrasting black and white bands, almost chevron-like pointing up towards the head. The snout is rounded, and in the mouth hide two rows of teeth on the lower jaw, teamed with an upper jaw armed with up to five maxilla teeth and the infamous pair of fans. Between these, a blue-black forked tongue slides out, picking up particles in the atmosphere to analyse 
back in its Jacobson's organ, just trying to work out what it is that you are, what it is that it, this snake is staring at. Its eyes are ablaze with fierce golden irises surrounding circular pupils. You know, threatened, the snake has lifted a third of its body off the ground. No small amount at all. Its eyes are locked on yours, its head pointing purposefully towards you, and its body poised, ready to explode to meet you should you attack it. And that's the key takeaway. If you aren't a cobra, a true cobra, you normally wouldn't have too much to fear from the king cobra. The king cobra is not considered aggressive in demeanor and would normally try to avoid confronting a clumsy, hairless ape like yourself by any means necessary. But you've committed a cardinal sin. You've disturbed a nest. To quote Jeff Goldblum, mummy's very angry. Her fangs are somewhat bared. And what's more, she spreads the ribs at the front of her body, stretching the scales wide into the notorious hood of the King Cobra. She views you as a danger to her and a threat to her eggs. And her awe-inspiring display is not meant as an attack, but as a means to send you running so she can tend to her clutch in peace. It's a defense response. But you're not a complete fool. You uh, you know a little bit about these, these kind of things. And so startling or disrespecting this expectant mother is not your intention. So you lower your posture and you back away slowly, allowing her time to reposition and calm herself. As she turns her attention back to the nest, you get a glance at the striking decoration adorning the rear of her hood. Two brown circles joined by a dropping line, the shape boldly outlined in white, itself surrounded by a thin black outline. It really is a beautiful snake to, to behold. That's if you're a human. But what if you are a true cobra? Um, Gareth, are you a, are you a cobra, a true cobra, or are you a I, person? I mean, do I consider myself a true cobra? <laughs> um, no, I suppose, but for the purposes of this, yes. No, for the purposes of this, you're not a true cobra because... Ah, right. Professor G, you are once again being transformed, and this time out of the body yeah. of a human and into the body of a young male king cobra. And the transformation has made you very hungry. So Very hungry. Gareth, you've had a bask in the early morning sun, something that we here in the uh, southwest of England don't know much about right now. What is, yeah, what is the sun? <laughs> You're feeling energized and ready to hunt. What's the very first thing and probably the most continuous behavior you're going to undertake moving forward from here? Either tasting uh, the air to find out what's going on or looking around because both of those are probably the, the two single most important senses for, for a cobra or king you've, cobra, sorry. You've, you've hit the, the nail right on the head. I was a bit worried because I thought I'd worded that and it might sound like a trick question and throw you off, but no, you're quite right. Ton flicking. Uh, that forked ton of yours is very active right now as you employ all of your senses in the task of seeking prey. The forks will be catching those scent particles in the air, bringing them back into the Jacobson's organ, a sensory receptor we've already mentioned and here that data is analyzed can you like more on tatooine sense your very own kenobi like prey so 
<laughs> now that you've uh, now that you've been tasting the air quite a lot, what's your what's your next move? Well, I think it'd probably be to look for prey. If I'm a young young one, it's going to be something like a rat, I'd imagine, or maybe a smaller snake. Yeah. So with the the forked tongue, uh, those forks are actually acting in stereo, so you get a very good sense of of where all these scents around you are coming from, and you'll start in the direction of the scent's origin, stopping momentarily to uh, to reassess the situation. So you've mentioned sight. But I want to kind of break it down a little bit further before you see something, but after you've tasted its scent in the air, what's the next sense that you'll be utilising, G-Man? Probably vibration. Yes. Uh, Bang on. Well done. Good good vibes. uh, You know, uh, what a snake looks for. Good vibes. You've got the uh, Beach Boys playing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So touch, uh, you'll begin to seek the vibrations of movement across the substrate that you're slivering upon, and you'll be able to sense the movement of prey up to 100 meters away, adding further clues to your quarry's location. So, Gareth, you've closed ground on your prey now, a much smaller snake, as you mentioned, that's exactly what you're looking for. Uh, in this case, it's an Indian, a young, I should say, a young Indian cobra. Uh, It has become the lucky the well, sorry the unlucky object of your Very attention lucky. <laughs> uh lucky because it gets to be on the natural history covered podcast for all of two minutes <laughs> spoilers um you'll now use scent particles picked up on your tongue and the vibrations picked up on your belly to get a line on this cobra's activity and then you'll use that incredible sight that you mentioned you'll start tracing his movements with your eyes are you going to give chase now that you've seen him? Yes, I guess so. Not so much. You're oh, okay. a little bit more of a camper, a sniper. Ah, Patience cool. is your friend, Gareth. So Indian Cobra uh, will sliver within range, and then bang! Your King Cobra, Gareth, um, will hit him. You, you, The victim... I mean, it's over before it even knows what what has hit him. It doesn't know that Gareth's come down on top of it. It probably would have barely felt the sharp uh, sting of the injecting um, fangs there. But that's pretty much it. It really won't know what's what's gone on. King Cobras don't actually have the most powerful venom in the snake family, but the lethality lies in the delivery method. See, their fangs are really long. Uh, for their size, they're about half an inch long, actually. Uh, that's long enough to penetrate through f- flesh layers and inject straight into the bloodstreams of their prey. And the two venom glands that secrete the toxin, their payload is huge, delivering between 400 and 600 milligrams of venom in a single bite. Um, so that's a really deadly amount, uh, which I'll try and put that into perspective for you a little bit later but before long that indian cobra will be downed and king gareth uh, need only sit and wait or follow in a leisurely manner now you guys know that i'm a bit of a venom nerd and i'm not talking about spider-man's symbiote nemesis though that venom is also super cool no i'm talking about venom as in venomous species and envenomation the tool of the advanced snakes so of course I was going to give you the rotten details of how this fluid affects the envenomated. 
So the first component is called free finger toxins. Have you heard of that, Gareth? Three finger toxins? No, I haven't actually. No, I, 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 I didn't know if you would have. I, I tend to go into venom a bit more than you and Drew do because I'm a bit, uh, well, a bit interested in it. But basically, free finger toxins, they can be divided into a few types. Uh, but the main subgroups are the neurotoxins that attack nerve tissue and the cardiotoxins that attack the heart. So there's evidence from venom studies that show the that the cardiotoxicity um, is actually un uncommon in victims of a king cobra bite, and nephrotoxicity is not documented really at all, but that cytotoxicity is present. So the main function of the free finger toxins of cobra venom is to attack your nerve tissues and attack your cells, uh, the cell the cell attack being from the cytotoxicity. The second component of snake venom in, in, in the king cobra is something called snake venom metallo metalloproteinases. I'm just going to ask you, Gareth, if you can take a guess what that is, because there is a clue in that last word. What I'll, was I'll the, say sorry, say it again. Metalloproteinases. Oh, um, well... A's would anything on the end of A's would it would be an enzyme. Uh, so good. it's an enzyme that probably breaks down protein. Yeah. What was the first bit metallo? Yes. So uh, metabolizing proteins. Not, are... not the uh, Superman villain. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this uh, this component, the snake venom metalloproteinases. These are as Gareth alluded to their protease enzymes, which uh, just so happen to use metal as a catalytic mechanism to do their job. That's where the metallo part comes from. Oh. And their job? Well, proteases, like we've already mentioned, they are enzymes. Break down your flesh. Exactly. They're intended to break down proteins such as flesh. Um, this, these snake venom metal metalloproteinases make up almost 25% of the venom proteins in King Cobras. Uh, this is a huge leap from the 1% representation that it has in the bites of most true Cobras. So about 1% of true Cobra venom is this snake venom meta metalloproteinases, and about 25% is, is the amount of these metalloproteases in King Cobra bites. It, it's a huge um, pretty hefty yeah it's uh it this this bite packs a punch to summarize the large dosage of venom is injected deep underneath your skin into your bloodstream it attacks your blood circulatory system damaged cell sorry damaging cells to the point that they no longer hold the blood uh it then prevents coagulation so the clotting of blood meaning that your cells and your soft tissues and the wound continuously bleed out. Uh, all the while, it attacks your nerve tissues. Your senses will leave you as you start to suffer vertigo and blurred vision. Your body will swell from extreme fluid retention. Adding to your problems, the venom also contains a modicum of Vesprin, which is a protein that, in terms of venoms, is found only in the king cobra. And this will see you lose all motor control function of your body and open you up to a whole new meaning of pain as it sends like the pain receptors, uh, it sets them on fire. Um, it, Inter interesting that it's called Vesperin. Uh, can you elaborate? Well, Vesper is the 
um the the scientific name for wasps uh wasps yeah i never um, I'm i didn't assuming... make that connection well I'm, i i would have assumed if it was called vesperin like um oh i'm trying to think of the name of the uh uh scopuline or scopulin is is found from scolopendra centipedes um ah. that's the one of the venom you know uh, components uh is it scolopine something like that but yeah, I'd have thought it was was found in wasps and and hornets as well, but evidently not. So it's, uh, there must be. There's probably a very similar naming convention to it. Yeah, there's there's got to be a link there somewhere. Yeah. Um. And back to the vent. The the this bite. You've got one final bonus to look forward to, and that is that you'll have necrosis set in. So yeah, probably best if you don't get bitten by a king cobra. Um, just as a side note, you'll hopefully recall that I said that King Cobra Venom isn't the most potent of snake venoms. Well, I wanted to still make it kind of understandable uh, for us as human beings. Just two tenths of a fluid ounce of King Cobra Venom is enough to slay you and 20 of your friends within half an hour. In fact, that amount would bring down a bull elephant over a couple of hours. So can't wait to get to more potentially venomous snakes as we continue this podcast. Uh, looking at you, Black Mamba, because that's one I do want to do, the Black Mamba. Um, so yeah, my advice, if you're planning your next trip to Thailand around wrestling and King Cobra, I highly recommend increasing your dietary intake of turmeric root and uh, and even keeping some on you to consume while you lay miserably waiting for an anti-venom to arrive. Because apparently turmeric root um, has uh, compounds in it that are resistant to King Cobra venom. It won't solve your issues, it certainly won't stop you from suffering, but it will make your suffering perhaps a little less intolerable. Um, but yeah, let's move away from the venom and back to its owner, Professor G. Uh, Gareth, how's your serpentine adventure going now? Well, presumably I ate that other small cobra, so uh, I'm full. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah slithering around. Haven't been eaten by anything else, so, you know, good. Yeah, you are doing quite well. You've eaten a healthy meal, as you say. And uh, you still seem to be somewhat semi-active. Had you selected bigger prey, as you kind of want to do sometimes, you'll probably follow up with a fast span in a couple months. They can go without food for quite some time, these guys, um, which is another advantage of, of being a snake, really. You, you often will eat and sleep uh, for a long period of time. Um as it happens, though, you have survival on your mind. You're going to keep moving for the time being. Now, your kind enjoys quite a vast range, spanning much of South Asia, Southeast Asia, and the Indian subcontinent. But as you wander around, your Jacobson's organ can detect no sign of your own species. You are alone, truly. Um, mm. Despite your large range, threats to King Cobra survival have continuously dogged the species, they are now exceptionally hard to find and coming across one safely and being able to respectfully enjoy observing them would make for one very lucky person indeed. So Gareth, the story can now go one of two ways. 
You've mm-hmm. come down from a mountainside and found yourself on a border where the forests meet the farms. Uh, so which will you choose to enter first, the forest or the farm? I think I'm going to go for the forest. Okay. I'm naturally a bit more wary of farms. Mm. That would be me as well. So if you're asking me, uh, I would be more inclined to go to the forest. However, I think a snake would probably be more inclined to go to the farms. But I'm going to play devil's advocate on this one. Just go for the forest. You're going to go for the forest? Yep. Is that your final answer? It's my final answer. I'll be dead in a minute, I know. but You've entered the forest first. Navigating your way through the undergrowth, you quickly come to a thinning of the trees. Here, less than a kilometre away from the border with the farm, vast deforestation has occurred. You slowly and deliberately track your way along the tree line, but you're caught up by one of those hairless apes, shoved into a sack amid a raucous level of shouting, and your world goes dark forever. Wonderful. Wonderful. (laughs) I knew I'd die. I knew I'd die. But we're going to jump over to Earth 616 now. Gareth chose to go to the farm. (laughs) So Earth 616, Gareth, has entered the farm. Slowly you navigate the edges. (laughs) Sorry, Gareth, it's just every time we do this. Every time. I know, every time. To be honest, you putting a farm in there just makes me think, nah, 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 that's a trick. I'm not not going for the obvious. Um... Oh, wait. You could have said you enter the forest. There is a road running through it. You get run over. An eagle swoops down and grabs you away. A tiger lands on you. An elephant steps on you. Any of these things could have happened to have killed me. I reckon you've just rigged it. It's just every time. It is a little bit rigged. You catch pneumonia and die. A spaceship. Lands and exactly. You, lands and you die. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, uh, right. Ah, oh, dear. This, this is why I always hated those goosebumps. Choose your own adventure book because I'd always end up like you know, you went into the cupboard. Oh, and the monster got you. Great. Okay. Oh dear. <laughs> so. Anyway, back back to Earth 616, Gareth. Just to inform everybody a bit of backstory about Earth 616, Gareth. He has basically led life all the all the exact same way from from hatching all the way up to uh up to his to you know having that his decision. <laughs> his, uh, yeah, how you've had your Indian cobra meal, everything is exactly as before. You find yourself at the same kind of fork in your in your in, in your fate, the forest of the farm. This time, Earth 616, Gareth has chosen to enter the farm. Um, and slowly, you navigate the edges of bush or move along in the shade of the buildings. You round the corner and you find it's a livestock farm. Well, livestock means grains and feed grains mean rodents. And rodents means snakes and snakes, well... Snakes means all you can eat buffet. So, but you've not long just eaten. So you're not really looking for food and you continue onwards. Suddenly, your Jacobson's organ starts firing up. More King Cobras. Across the track from your position, two very healthy looking specimens lie roughly 15 meters away from each other. You can move up the track, Gareth, or you can move down the track. 
which doesn't matter because as I go on the track, a combine harvester runs me over. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll go. I'll go up the track. Why not? Go towards them. You're going up track, are you? That was that was towards them, wasn't it? Uh, well, you, they're 15 meters away. One's kind of down track from you. The other's kind of up track from you. Let's go up the track. Let's roll okay. a d20. See what happens. Cool. So you've decided to sliver up the track and you've met a male. The two of you size each other up and then one by one, you rise up again, lifting that front third of your body length off the ground. And then battle is initiated. But don't worry, Gareth, this isn't a real battle. It's more like a WWE wrestling match more for show and ritual and you don't wish to hurt each other but the if victor, wrestling was done with no arms if yeah if wrestling was done with no <laughs> arms and no legs um and if you had two knives dipped in poison that uh <laughs> that you weren't allowed to use <laughs> I think so, i could have made it more interesting actually but uh, fair enough it is more ritualistic uh and like i say you don't want to hurt each other um there's not many of you around uh but the victor will be the one who pins the other's head to the ground. And on this occasion, it's you. You've yeah. won the day. Earth 616 has not only made the right decision in Forrester Farm, but he's uh, he's also beaten a, a rival. Now, you start to sliver down track and you meet the other one. The other one is a female. Tun flicking to inform the Jacobson's organ will now kick into hyper gear as you both assess each other's worthiness. This will be followed by our male, Gareth, nudging the female along her body. The nudging will soon become mutual body rubbing before the male attempts to impress his mate, essentially, basically becoming, look at how well I can wrap my entire body around yours. Almost like bullying, I suppose. Uh, If this dance is successful, the female will allow copulation and they will mate. Unfortunately, you're interrupted. Panicked voices and heavy footsteps are racing up the track towards you. You turn to see men carrying a sack. Again, again with the sack. (laughs) You turn back to realise you're alone again. The female's gone. You turn back towards the men to find that the male further up has been caught, bunged into that sack, and his world went dark forever. Unfortunately, the King Cobra is listed as vulnerable. Deforestation, fragmentation, and loss of habitat uh, are the major concerns, but so too is poaching for the illegal trade in wildlife or as a meat resource, or unfortunately, uh, still to this day, for witch doctors. Um, Added to this is, of course, human-snake conflict. Where there's fear of an animal, there's always persecution of that animal. But whilst their reputation for being dangerous is understandable because of that venomous bite, the fear surrounding them is misplaced and ill-informed. They are unique among snakes, uh, displaying a behavioural complexity and an intelligence rarely seen among their peers. They are, as I have stated, really beautiful. uh, And considering the entire, I can't think of a single ugly snake, uh, that really is saying something. And yeah, I don't think I don't think there is. They're all pretty in their own way. They are all very pretty. I think the the most beautiful one is one I covered last year. I did Gaboon Viper or the year before. 
last year, I think. Yeah. yeah Gaboon Vipers are stunning. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, they, these guys are extremely beautiful snakes, and they themselves are frightened. The female running from the, the, the screaming men is exactly the type of genuine reaction that this animal would have. I really can't stress enough, most of the examples of so-called aggression are in fact defensive strategies to protect themselves from harm or to protect their nests. They are very much misunderstood and unjustly feared. But speaking of escapes and unique behaviours, let's catch up with that female that, that, that you met. Hang on, do I escape? Well, spoiler, I, I can't spoil things, Gareth. Oh, great. Cliffhanger. <laughs> You see, <laughs> on the far side of the farm, if 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 Earth One Gareth had chosen the farm and been and been patient, then uh, <laughs> he would have found that on the far side of the farm is some lush, dense primary forest, as yet untouched by the destructive habits of mankind. Here, in the dappled shelter of the trees, our female is hard at work. She pushes leaves, sticks, and other bits of bits of of nature's debris into a neat pile and mounts it, preparing to lay her eggs. She'll soon have a clutch numbering between 20 and 40 eggs, but nest building is not the only behavior unique to king cobras because all of these eggs will now be incubated partially by the rising temperature of the nest substrate as it decomposes and breaks down, but mostly by mum herself laid on top of the eggs with her long, thick body wrapped around them. But the uniqueness doesn't end there. Not only does she build a nest, not only does she actively incubate the eggs, but as we found early in the grasslands, she will defend them. And to tie a nice little bow around the whole beautiful scene playing out in front of us, King Cobra Gareth has survived, and he has used his Hooray. incredible senses. <laughs> <laughs> One version of you has made it out. That's uh, better than nothing. <laughs> You've used your incredible senses to relocate your mate, and you will now remain by her side throughout the incubation period, because that's what king cobras do. What a beautiful snake. And how incredible are they? An unjustified reputation for non-existent aggression, an insanely dangerous venom, a severely persecuted species, and a snake that, admittedly only for a short period, builds a family and a home. They are absolutely wonderful animals beyond any doubt hmm yeah really cool uh snakes uh the king cobra Aaron, it, it, uh, stop me if i'm wrong but in their rearing ability don't they have the potential to rear up and look something like an uh an asian elephant in the eye um height wise i think like a full-grown one i think yes a full-grown a full-grown king cobra but bear in mind um, we're talking about looking an elephant, an Asian elephant in the eyes, and the eyes on on an elephant's head aren't at the top. They're basically so, about so, the height of a man, like where yeah, their eyes are. They, I'd say they could easily reach up to like to look you in your eyes. Um, mm. And yeah, the Asian elephants that I've met, um, yeah, certainly be able to look into their eyes. Yeah, and their their venom is potent enough to down an elephant as well. Yeah. A bull mm. elephant can be dropped with the same, like I said, I think it's two tenths of a fluid ounce. So a really, <laughs> really tiny amount will kill a, minuscule. a full male elephant. And that same amount would not just kill you, but kill 20 of you. Yeah. 
Um, uh, they're impressive animals. I, I love the fact that they are, well, they're not a cobra. <laughs> and they're not a member of any monarchy, as far as I'm aware. No, but, but you, um, they are... They are closely. They they're actually closer related to the mambas than the than they are the cobras. Ah, no, I wasn't aware of that. But yeah. that, that's really cool. Right. Well, should we slither our way from uh, from me making bad decisions as a snake into our emails for this week? Yes. No, oh dear. <laughs> Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's emails, and our question from last week was, where in the world would you want to go to make a scientific discovery? Now, we only had two people who commented on uh, on this post, so it's a little, little bit shocked that we didn't have any more. We had Nick Tenick, the Kimberley, to discover a long-lost population of long-beak echidnas. That'd be pretty cool. Um, that would be very, very cool if uh, you, you managed to oh, do yeah, that. Oh, yeah, that would be. <laughs> Uh, and my other half has put uh, somewhere with a poolside, a bar, table service, no mosquitoes, minimum humidity, warmer but not excessive temperatures, and endless cocktails, low gravity would be a bonus. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, I don't know what the sc- discovery is going to be. I suppose the discovery of low gravity around a specific uh, pool and or bar. So um, that could make the whole thing very, very interesting. You know, the water just sort of lifting out of your drink. So that was that was our our questions from last week. Hopefully, going to get slightly more answers uh, from this week's question. And I thought, well, actually, Aaron, is the king cobra your favourite reptile or one of your favourite reptiles? It is actually not even in. Well, it might make it into my top twenty. Oh, well, that but kind it's of not actually negates... my top my favourite. Okay, well, that kind of negates the the question that I'm posing for this week is, what is your favourite reptile and why? So tell us, Aaron, what is your favourite reptile and why? My favourite reptile and why? Um, It might be a little bit um, cliche to say it, but it's actually, and I can't decide between which which one, but it's actually monitor lizards. Um, I love monitor lizards. So... It's a bit of a cheat, and it might be a bit cliche, but monitor lizards would sit at number one. So after that, if I could try and get a single species for you, I think my favourite species of reptile might well be gaboon vipers. Okay, that's pretty good. That's that's certainly up there. I was okay. struggling because because at the same time, I have a I, I know that I know everybody thinks they're a bit lame, but. I I was very fond of my corn snake, and so for that reason alone, corn snakes, corn snakes are very high in my in my estimations. So highly highly snake based for you then? I yeah, well, because because monitor lizards are very closely related yep. to snakes. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, see if you can guess what you think my one would be. My favorite reptile. Your favorite reptile. There's um, there's two that instantly come to mind for me. But one, I, I think, beats the other one. I think one of them has got to be the American alligator. Ooh, you know what? That one's a th- that one's close third. Um, another one that I think would be high up your list, if not number one, then certainly high up your list. I think is Tuatara. Whatever would give you that idea, as he pulls his shirt up so that Aaron can see <laughs> the shirt that he's currently wearing. 
not a shameless plug or anything, but yeah, let's do a shameless plug of the fact that I am wearing my Natural History Cupboard podcast t-shirt of a Tuatara, uh, available in various different colours from our T-Mill shop. Uh, whereas Aaron is wearing his favourite reptile-based t-shirt, it's a T-Rex. Uh, I was going to say, that would be my, my, fantastic number, my number three. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, uh, if you want to uh, to get one of those, they're on our fantastic team hill shop. That was nicely slotted in there, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So my my first, I think, would be Tuatara because they're just such an absolutely awesome uh, reptile. They're very they, cool. You know, in fact, going back and go back and listen to the episode on Tuataras that we did because that will explain everything about the fact that they're not a lizard, even though they look like one. My second probably goes to the saltwater crocodile, because they're just such an awesome, awesome reptile. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, Saltwater would be high up for me too. Go back and listen to our saltwater crocodile episode that uh, Aaron did quite a while back, actually, that one. Yeah, yeah. And then third, yeah, it has to go to the American alligator, which is a lot more recent. Oh, look, these are all ones only covered. two weeks ago? <laughs> Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So American alligator, absolutely amazing. But I mean, I really like tortoises as well. You know, turtles. There's so many, there's so many possible options to choose. One that I have reptile. the sea crates. Ah, yeah. The they snakes that cool. evolved to live in the sea and they've got the flattened blade like tail to help them paddle yep. through the water. Oh, amazing animal. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely stunning creatures. So yes, dear listeners, if you want to tell us what your favorite reptile is, um, you may even have one as a pet. There are quite a few people who've got some truly amazing pet reptiles all throughout the world. But you can do that by sending that in on our Facebook page um, and linking neatly to that as well would be the fact that I would also include, go and check out our T-Mill store as well, where you can get uh, t-shirts of some of those fantastic uh, creatures. Also, mm. uh, I think it's worth pointing out as well, if you were listening last week, we alluded to the fact that we are uh, going to be appearing at the Barnstable Library on the is the 12th. On April the 13th. Why do I keep saying the 12th? You do keep saying the 12th. Uh, yeah, listen to Aaron, he knows the dates. <laughs> on April 13th, uh, well, we'll be um, taking a, a dive in metaphorical terms because there was no way on earth either of us are going to go diving in the uh, the rivers around here at the moment, it's far too cold to talk about the River Tor uh, and all the wildlife that you expect to find along its course um, from the uh, the very start to the very end where it joins the sea. So, uh, yeah, uh, if you are in the area and uh, are around for that on the 13th, not the 12th, listen to Aaron, um, <laughs> then uh, feel free to, uh, to try and book a ticket from the library and join us there for our first attempt at a live show in front of actual people. Normally, it's just in front of a kitchen or something like that. Yes, <laughs> so, yes, yes. And two two cats happen to be in my audience, and they're both <laughs> asleep. So I hope I haven't had the same effect on our listeners. Oh dear. Um, but that brings us as well neatly to mentioning our patreons, Aaron. Who are our patreons? Our patreons are lovely patreons who support us so kindly. They are as follows. Uh, we'd like to thank Chelsea McKee, Connie P, Jen Greenhall, and Fogtober. You guys are fantastic. Um, thank you very much for your continued support. Yes, a uh, big thank you from all of us here. Um, but if you don't have money to chuck in, uh, as our lovely Patreons have, um, then you can support us in the following ways. The first one is just by listening to us. Uh, 
and uh, and getting to the end of the episode, which is always a bonus. Uh, the second is uh, hmm. telling someone about us, letting people know that we're here. Uh, podcasts live and die on the word of mouth. So you telling people about your favorite new podcast is really, really amazing and does help out an amazing amount. I said the word amazing far too much there. Uh, the third uh, way that you can help uh, is by liking, sharing, subscribing on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on, because that pushes us up the charts. I have no idea where we sit uh, charts wise these days. I'll have to have a bit of a, a dig around uh, in some of those um, algorithms. Yeah, I might have a look after we, we finish recording tonight. Yeah. And uh, well, see where we are, especially if you type in exceedingly niche things like natural history cupboards we probably come top of that list i hope we do <laughs> but uh, yeah those are the the ways that you can uh, help us out that all works um to do well what we want to do which is tell you guys about natural history and some of the different bits and pieces that we find along the way uh, and that pretty much brings us to the end of this week's episode so uh, a big thank you uh aaron Oh, thank you very much for having me again. And thank you to all our, like I say, thank you to our lovely patrons, but also thank you to all our lovely supporters, including mm. uh, our listeners, our families, and our friends. Yep. And each other. Thank you to you, Gareth. Oh, but that's fine, you know. You are lovely too. Oh, well, I try. I try. <laughs> <laughs> and a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. One does not simply take down an adult elephant with two-tenths of a fluid ounce of venom. <laughs> <laughs>